Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesmandel. Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Lyme. Hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. Today, we're going to talk about the next opportunity to put a non-commercial, brand new radio station on the air in the United States. We know that's something people get very excited for. And we're also going to talk about cassettes for art, for radio, for sound. Are they back? Did they go away? What are we doing with them? And we're going to get a rundown on some recent radio scholarship and podcast and sound scholarship with Jennifer and discover, well, well, why is this important? And why do, why do we, why do we talk about this stuff? So that's all coming on today's radio survivor. We hope it'll be fun for, for you. It'll certainly be fun for us. Um, but first up, you know, there is an opportunity and we've discussed it a couple times in the show, but now there are dates. There are dates, definitive dates in the calendar when, Nonprofit organizations, it could be a local club, a local organization, a school, a high school, a college, university, or a church, a religious group, has the opportunity to apply for a new non-commercial radio station here in the United States. And it's a so-called NCE license, which stands for non-commercial educational, because that's supposed to be what it's for, education. And it's a full power license. This means the licenses are going to be a minimum of 250 watts and up, but in many cases, much bigger, kilowatts of power. And what that means is that uh, the stations, in many cases, can cover a fair amount of territory. Uh, We've often talked about low-power FM, which is a specific type of non-commercial license where the maximum power is 100 watts. They're meant to cover small areas, towns, neighborhoods, small cities, and are very inexpensive to put on the air. Um, this is not that we're talking about, think about the NPR affiliate in your town or a high power college radio station or community radio station. That's the type of license that we're talking about in this case. And so that opportunity is coming up November 2nd through 9th. The FCC now runs what's called a window, which means it is simply a time when you can go ahead and apply for one of these licenses. Um, a fair amount of work is involved These are not super simple licenses to get, so this is something where you definitely want to consult an engineer or a broadcast lawyer or both to help you along. And I know that there are uh, several nonprofits, such as uh, Common Frequency, are going to be there to try and help community groups, especially focused on community radio, uh, direct them and help them get the assistance they may need to put one of uh, these stations on the air. But, you know, it's coming up November 2nd through 9th, and so the time to get organized is now and to begin doing some of that work. We don't yet know um, or have a strong sense of uh, what cities and communities are likely to be included. Um, That information should be forthcoming pretty soon. And, And also, like, how large of a station in these cities and communities. We can probably say uh, most large metroplexes are probably not going to be included, or at least um, if there is a station included, it's going to be kind of what we call a rim shot signal. So something that's in like a far suburb or far exurb, maybe a sister city in some cases, but in places like, say, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, um, it's unlikely uh, there'll be too many uh, frequency opportunities, except in the case of probably if there are any uh, stations that have essentially gone off the air and turned in their licenses. Typically these days on the FM band, stations sell their licenses, <laughs> even if they're going off the air and transfer them. 
so it's, it, there's very few cases of them being turned back into the FCC, but that's plausible. So really the opportunity is probably going to be in smaller cities and towns and rural areas, but these are all places that need great radio. So we just want to make sure everyone else, everyone knows about that. I don't know if, I, if I'm leaving anything out, Eric or Jennifer. Yeah, well, I uh, just want to let listeners know that we've talked about this topic um, recently uh, in more detail, and they can check the show notes to if, – if you want to hear more of Radio Survivor's advice on what, what we think uh, about this opportunity for new community radio stations to go on the air. Um, we yeah, we got advice from a broadcast length. lawyer, so somebody who, who has experience working with the FCC – and uh, applying for licenses with the FC. So it's very good advice. Uh, go to RadioSurvivor.com right. uh, for those show notes. Now for the even more fun stuff, Eric. Uh, you recently took a workshop using about using cassettes for art. Yeah, Tell well, us about that. Uh, it was the highlight of my pandemic, friends. Other than and then the Radio Survivor podcast. Uh, you know, so... Uh, I signed up for a workshop with an organization known as Dogbotic, which they call themselves a Berkeley-based audio laboratory that makes strange and lovely sounds for strange and lovely people. At least that's how they addressed an email to me after I signed up. Um, there, It was only one weekend for me, but it was a 20-hour span of, of time. And there's so much I can talk about with this workshop. Um, it was called uh, Cassette Hacking. Uh, Dogbotic uh, teaches numerous workshops, um, all in the realm of uh, sound and technology, I think is a good uh, tent to put over the work that they do. Um, they let us know that at the beginning of the workshop that uh, in, in the before times, they were more of a... Um, uh, a collective of artists that would create both um, professional work uh, for hire, you know, uh, scoring uh, advertisements on the internet. I, I, I've noticed that some of the work they were doing, like um, you know, giving, getting a custom score and soundtrack for your for your Instagram campaign, um, but also doing artwork in public spaces like uh, galleries. But the, during the pandemic, they were teaching these workshops over Zoom. And uh, the workshop that I took was cassette hacking. The goal, my goal, was to learn how to open up a uh, Walkman, an off-brand Walkman, not an original Sony Walkman from the 1980s or 90s, but a brand new uh, Walkman. And Paul, maybe you might even know more about that Walkman than I do, uh, the, the, the particular device. But opening up this device that plays cassettes and uh, learning how to uh, get into the guts to circuit bend and control uh, both the, the motor to change the pitch of what's coming out of the tape, as well as uh, we learned how to control the, um, the amplitude of what's coming out of the tape. So, and, and then linking that control to different kinds of electronic circuits that um, give you numerous opportunities to twist knobs and press buttons to change the outcome. Um, so that was the, the 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 physical goal of the workshop cassette hacking that dog box dog botic uh, taught. There was about fifty people that took the class live on Zoom over the weekend, and um, but there was a larger uh, concept at work uh, that the instructors were sort of uh, had in their hearts in their minds of of teaching people. Um, 
there was yeah they had they had br- uh, a vision for these classes beyond just uh, opening up the cassette deck they they wanted to make sure uh, both to um demystify the process of of electronic engineering uh there was mm. there was a discussion early on in in the workshop that um uh a lot of people who have this uh, skill set can be gatekeepery or rude when they're faced with beginners or just downright um unwilling to help and th- this this workshop they wanted to foster a completely different sense of um of teaching new skills to people uh there was also a little bit of that um uh uh, fetishization that we love so he- much here on Radio Survivor of the physical media. Um, we uh, it, it's it's worth mentioning that I was one of the elders in the class at age forty four. Um, a lot of people in their twenties. Uh, there was even some teenagers uh, taking the class. So so maybe that I want to bring the question: Why would somebody want to take a class to learn how to take apart a cassette Walkman to vary the speed and 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 play with the amplitude and other aspects of the sound? Especially, why would somebody uh, who's who's eighteen years old uh, want to do this? What what is the what's the allure here? What and what's kind of applications for uh, this uh, hacked Walkman? Yeah, well, well, it, and, and can I add to that? And does that mean that these eighteen year olds have an experience with Walkmans already. So interesting, you know, <laughs> wonderful question. And um, part of me as a radio producer wanted to uh, get an answer from each individual from the class. Everybody who took the class, all 40, because it was uh, maybe, you know, 43 people uh, taking the class and then about seven or eight instructors who were uh, floating around helping and also fascinating individuals with their own experiences with uh, with with physical media and cassette tapes um so i'm gonna be generalizing but they all did uh everyone did answer that question of what is their experience with with um magnetic tape in these uh beautiful little uh, uh plastic boxes that we call cassettes um so your question was what is their experience with do do do, do all of them have experience with it no the 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 organization Dogbotic that ran the cassette hacking workshop uh, sent each individual participant a package in the mail that included uh, a a handful of cassettes, uh, some blank, one uh, a short ten second loop, which is pretty impressive, a handmade loop uh, cassette loop, um, as well as one uh, commercially produced cassette. Uh, so mine was from 1995 and was uh, um, a, a Christian uh, working walking workout cassette tape uh, that had That's a amazing. certain beats per <laughs> minute. The, the The workout begins at 110 beats per minute and accelerates to 134 beats per minute and then goes back down to 110 beats per minute cool down session. And there's a cue in the middle to flip the tape over if you want half a workout. Um so uh, many of the participants did not have experience with cassette tapes in their lives, and many did. Um, and what can they do? Um, m- the majority of people taking the class were musicians or composers or musically minded individuals. There was a handful of um, uh, people I would more uh, term in- fascinated by sound art, even though maybe they didn't necessarily even know that that's um, you know if, if they had if they were 
loyal Radio Survivor listeners, they might call themselves sound artists or sound workers. Um, we had just, we had interviewed Michelle Hilmes uh, a day before I took the class. And so actually the same day that I took the class, uh, and Michelle Hilmes was on Radio Survivor um, evangelizing the term sound work uh, to describe what people do when they when they create either radio podcasts or um, internet sounds uh, that's that's not strictly music, and so I it, I was really surrounded by sound workers, uh, even though they wouldn't all self-identify. And so when you have a hacked cassette deck, um, it it gives you numerous opportunities to create a unique set of sounds that are not otherwise available uh, in the vast world of of sound design that currently um, is part of most people's. Um, but work is that true? Day. I mean, you know, because I think one question is that these days computers yes can do a lot with sound, right? right? And and in in computers I'm going to include smartphones and I'm going to include tablets, I'm going to include, you know, probably Chromebooks, right? The the type of digital devices that, you know, Zoomer has grown up with as part of their life. The software is there. Uh, many, many indie rock, independent music releases are made completely on a computer. Uh, right. You can manipulate sounds a hundred different ways, speed them up, slow them down, etc. Um, you know, so what is the appeal of doing it, you know, with, you know, essentially what is uh, 30 to 40 year old technology uh, that's, you know, to some extent not so available, uh, as easily as it once was right. um, compared to doing it uh, just sitting down uh, with a copy of, you know, pro tools or, uh, or something Garage else. Band. Yeah. Well, uh, for me, my answer is different than everyone else in the class. It would be really interesting to uh, pin down the 18 year old and be like, but why, but why are you so fascinated by this? Um, I, I would say that, uh, that for me, I think that my answer does overlap with what the other people who took the or even the the people that were running the class would say is that the physicality of the choice that you're making uh to slow down your audio to speed up your audio as well as the um uh the limitations of of this particular technology is is the is the point i mean yes you could do anything in your digital audio workstation known as a daw uh, you can do anything with a DAW, but um, uh, you can't you can't you can't physically touch the sound uh, the way that you can with the cassette tapes. And I mean, literally, uh, some of the artists that were participating, um, you know, would would physically touch the motor to slow it down and then speed it back up again, um, as well as uh, like you would do with a record, yeah, right effectively what which which many dj has done with a record if right. they had no other facility to otherwise manipulate the the the, the rhythm and tempo right. it's also it's also making me think about effects pedals that you know that's another physical tool that you see musicians using right you know i've had a lot of experimental musicians come on my radio show and and often they have just like a whole suitcase full of of tools like that that they play with did you get a sense that that there was some of that orientation among some of the musicians and were they do you know if they had familiarity with other sorts of um 
tools that they could manipulate with their hands or their feet. Yeah, most definitely. I, I think that this is this what we're what we're sort of circling right now is there is actually a wider discussion going on in a community outside of Radio Survivor, which is sort of the musical composer community. And I've tapped into that for the most part um, via YouTube. Uh, take that with a grain of salt. But there is a, you know, because you have digital audio workstations that can do anything, that can emulate any synthesizer, that can give you any choice, um, there is a large community of people, significant, uh, who has still are um, making that choice to use effects pedals that are self-contained 80s technology 90s technology as well as um uh, the synthesizers that physically exist even if they're built in the last five years while these digital audio workstations the synthesizers using technology basically that was developed in the 60s and 70s sometimes it's just a modern inc- sometimes some but that is you know a modern incarnation of it yes no there's, uh, a, synth- case, there's a synthesizer i have my eye on that's actually entirely digital uh, but still, um, it, you know, I mean, for one thing, your, you know, your, your MacBook Pro is only as good as Apple is. <laughs> at some point, right. at some point, your, no matter how, no matter how hardy and uh, useful your, your MacBook Pro, for instance, to name this one brand, uh, it has a, it has a sell by date that, that is built into the corporate culture. And so, you know, that's one reason why you might want a physical, uh, uh, you know, machine to rely on that's not your computer. You're sort of locked into always buying a new computer as soon as you depend on computers uh, for your for your Right. As soon as the software goes out of date or just no longer works with the kind of hardware you have uh, or, you you know, your hardware that you used to work with your old Mac doesn't work with your new one or your new computer and things like that. And and those are those are real choices. You know, I'm kind of. You know, reminded, uh, I, I recently uh, read an interview with uh, John Lydecker, who is a member of Negative Land. He goes, he, he performs under the name Wobbly. And I was sort of went down this hole because uh, Negative Land's done a series of live concerts online in the last month or so. Uh, Negative Land, uh, we've talked about many times in the show, they're connected to the show on KPFA called Over the Edge, a long-running collage experimental uh, culture jamming program that's that that is going on uh, forty some years forty or more years old, um, and it, so it's been interesting watching. They even did a Tiny Desk concert, which is an NPR concert series called Tiny Desk because it used to be bands would come in and perform around somebody's literal desk in like Washington in the Washington D.C. in Washington D.C. Yeah. Bob Boylan, but of course, now they're. Yeah, Bob Boylan. But uh, in well, this case, we'll, we will know that the pandemic has has come to an end or a significant milestone when the first Tiny Desk concert, uh, yeah, is in twenty twenty one. Hopefully, is recorded at the NPR offices in in DC. So they were all each spread out into individual homes across the country. The members, uh, I think, there were four uh, who were, were participating, and they're all. You know, they do a live collage. So taking cut up sounds and, and, and putting them together, which includes, you know, cut up, you know, things from movies, things from television, as well as musical sounds that may be produced through with musical instruments or other uh, homemade electronic uh, things, uh, such as uh, something called a, the booper, which is something which one of the members has, has been manufacturing himself for many years. It is, it, it kind of makes it sound like 
it's on a, on a poetic. Um, and, but I reading this interview with, with, uh, John Lydecker, who also performs with other artists, including uh, Thurston Moore, uh, from Sonic Youth, uh, talking about the fact that he didn't want to be hiding, basically hiding behind a laptop when he performs, yeah. especially on stage to just be that. And he's actually mostly now works with iPads, uh, which he has several of, but uses software that allows him to manipulate the sound both physically and sonically, like you would expect either a tape being run back and forth across a head or, or, or like vinyl. I wonder what he does when the apps that he's using on his iPads are no longer supported by the operating system. Uh, I wonder if he has just don't update those iPads. Right. Yeah. I wonder if (laughs) he's air gapped gapped to the iPads just to maintain their, uh, their sonic usefulness to his art. But even thinking about the fact is that, you know, there are, you see electronic musicians and experimental musicians, and sometimes where it is just, you're looking at someone behind a laptop. And on the radio, I guess, nobody knows that you're behind a laptop. Nobody no, knows you're, you're not a dog. But, um, but you know, if there's any sort of live performance, whether it's, you know, televised, if it's live online or live in person, um, having all these other physical objects, knobs to twiddle, yeah. uh, records to scratch, um, whatever. I mean, there is nevertheless something much more like watching a conventional, uh, musician who yeah. uses a guitar. And, right. drums, and that's, and that's what I would, I would just, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the majority of people that took this workshop, no matter what their age was, um, have a lot of experience getting their fingers, uh, toughening up their fingers on physical instruments. Uh, even if they were born, you know, after the iPhone was invented, um, they still they still know the value of of playing a guitar or playing a a keyboard, um, you know, a piano. So, um, another thing that was really exciting about the dogbotic cassette hacking workshop that I hadn't anticipated was just the the nature of coming together with a community of people around a shared goal. It reminded me of my youth in community radio. Um, it's just very you know one of the one of the unique things that they did on with this workshop and again uh some people who are probably too young to remember a world before facebook um they actually have a uh the the the, the, the dogmatic organization has a uh i'm assuming it's like a drupal website that's entirely um that reproduces the uh the connections that social media once promised uh, back before they became billion dollar corporations, the sort of the you know getting to to post a blog entry and then have people comment on your blog entry and all of that uh, devoted to um, one small community. This is a kind of internet that a lot of people might remember from the early two thousands. Um, Dogbotic had that. They've built that website uh, specifically for the. The group of people, both who are taking this one workshop as well as um, all of their other workshops that they had that they that they put on, um, yeah, it was it was a really interesting weekend. It was also um, there was a new you know not only were we cassette hacking you know opening up the these uh, beautiful cheap uh, Walkmans and finding which uh, which points on the circuit board controlled you know could be manipulated to control the motor, but there was also a lot of um, 
broader discussions opened up. There was some, you know, we actually had the, um, the, one of the organizers of the, of the entire community, uh, whose name is Kirk Pearson. They, they sent us, they said, you know, one of the things, how they ended the first, uh, long day of work, our, our secret homework at the end of that day was to take one of the cassettes, uh, uh, fast forward it to the, you know, there was like, it was like a kind of a scavenger hunt. I forget the exact coordinates of this of the hunt, but to to find a secret spot on one of the cassettes that they had sent us and listen to what was essentially um, a little like I, I I I labeled it a podcast interview, but it was it was a it was a, a phone interview between Kirk and their friend uh, sometime during the pandemic. So it really had that. Um, uh, the, all the themes that have come up during during this strange year uh, of isolation, uh, c- reaching out to a friend, recording this phone conversation to, uh, well, sharing it with everyone who's taking this class, this community, sharing it via cassette tape. So we all had a, you know, it 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 was the kind of podcast that I once dreamed of in the year two thousand. You know, really like mailing cassettes out to your audience. Uh, and their conversation that they had was a wide ranging philosophical conversation. It was edited down to 12 minutes, but part of it was, um, a discussion of whether or not the streaming music paradigm that is dominant in today's listening culture is, uh, bad (laughs) is, is super bad compared to what was possible beforehand. And, um, and so that, you know, that was a personal conversation between Kirk and their friend on this podcast. The, they, you know, Kirk was wondering, are we living in the dark ages of, of media because we've lost physical contact with our music? And, uh, and, then, and then the next day, that was how we started. Our Sunday was a, was a small group conversation of um, how do we feel about the ideas, uh, you know, addressed in, in Kirk's uh, radio zine that they slipped they slipped it right under our our earbuds. Uh, the, our the instructions were to listen to it before bed. Uh, so let sit in your head. You know, it's what's interesting to me talking about physical media like cassettes here on Radio Survivor is that well, on the one hand, this idea of tape manipulation, right? Using, you know, you know, using the tape not as it was intended, uh, goes back a long time, to pretty much to the earliest days of tape being available as yeah. a sonic medium. Uh, employed in in music concrete um, or in the BBC's uh, radiophonic workshops, as well as, you know, artists, both uh, popular and sort of uh, more with more sort of high culture, artistic intents. Yeah. My, my first exposure to the concept was the, the tape edited tape work of Giannis Zanakis, who is a Greek composer Who's I think this the work that I'm thinking of is from the 1950s and and Giannis Zanakis also had symphonies for orchestra you know cellos and violins and 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 whatnot but uh, uh, Zanakis also went ahead and and created an entire composition uh, that was one of my favorite things uh, 25 years ago that's all manipulated uh, tape from the 1950s so a very early adopter to the to the potential. Uh, sound potential of of manipulating tape yeah and yet you know i i'm verging on 50 you know i've been aware of sort of tape art and manipulations for more than half my life 
Um, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't remember a time when this sort of manipulation has actually been this popular. Right. Yeah. No, that's a really And, and I'm certain the internet is part of that. The ability to find, see somebody on YouTube doing it uh, and sometimes showing you how they did it. Yeah. Right. Because otherwise, even if you were sort of listening to the works, you only have access to the sound and not always as easily to to the visual of it in in a prior age. Yeah, I would also add that it's uh you know Paul, you pointed out that the cassette Walkmans that they sent us uh are available online for purchase for 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 between thirteen and nineteen dollars, which. I'm pretty sure is the most affordable that device has ever been in the history of the device. Especially right, adjusted for inflation, right? Yeah, that's and and amazing. they're not yeah. good. No. <laughs> the the ironic thing about cassette culture, I think, in the 21st century, right? You know, there, and you, there's press about the cassette revival, like there has been about the vinyl revival, and much of it's, I think, uh, you know, trite. You know, it's either like, look at these hipsters and their cassettes, whoa, or why would anyone want to listen to that old trash? It doesn't seem to be very nuanced, yeah. right, about about these things. Um, but one of the ironies of it is that, um, unlike turntables uh, for vinyl, it's hard to get <laughs> it's hard to get a good cassette deck anymore. Yeah, they simply really don't make them. Uh, and and mostly what what you find are versions of something that comes out of probably one out of three factories somewhere in China or East Asia, uh, and and they're you know of that aren't very that simply aren't very good. You won't yeah. find a Sony or a Panasonic. You're going to have to go to a vintage machine to really uh, to yeah. really get to get the good stuff. It's interesting you're talking about the machines because when you know back to sort of these early pioneers in in tape man- manipulation i always thought that that had to do with manipulating the tape not the device and yeah. so what's what's kind of cool to me about your workshop is that you're man- that you're manipulating the device were you also manipulating the tape as well um well there was there was a moment in the workshop where they did teach us how to build your own tape loop which is a beautiful thing that's been you know, speaking of what Paul just mentioned, how this is this is you know thirty year old technology, and yet the the thing I'm going to mention is something I've only known was popular in the last like four years, and it's you take the cassette, the 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 small plastic box about the size of a credit card, you unscrew it, you open it up, you take out the reel that's inside, and you create um a 10 second long version of it, loop it around, put it back inside the box, close it up. And now instead of a 45 minutes tape that only goes one way and then you rewind it, this is a 10 second loop that, that goes forever and you can record onto that anything you want to. Um, so that's one a really version of this cool. would have been used in answering machines. Right. If we remember them uh, beginning in the seventies as your outgoing announcement. That's right. Because it would have to loop around and be played again and again and again. Those machines often had two tapes. So you could buy these commercially, but they weren't intended for art. They were intended for, you know, something. And usually more like 30 seconds plays the one tape. You know, hi, this is Paul. Can't come to the phone right now. Leave a message. But a lot of us used our answering machines as artworks. Yeah. Right. Because I remember recording sounds. I had um, in the 90s, early 90s, I had a a doorbell where you could 
listen to the sounds outside when somebody came to the door and then push a button to let them in the building. And so I I would push record. I lived on a really popular street. And so I would record sometimes street noise and then put that on my answering machine. You know, by holding up my answering machine, I would hit record while I was pushing the button to hear the ambient noise outside. And, you know, a lot of my friends had answering machines, so you would hear weird things. Oh, yeah, and there's that- a whole industry of of uh, of, of uh, amateurly produced professional tapes that you would purchase for your answering machines, to sp- specifically mostly comedy tapes. Um, right. What a, what a, ludicrous, message, what yeah. a ludicrous thing that once existed. Um, well, you know, you know, Jennifer, you point out the difference between manipulating the medium and manipulating the machine, right? And in part, I think that's because uh, for much of the time that tape has been used as as an artistic medium in and of itself, as a musical medium, um, folks used reel-to-reel machines, right? So in a reel-to-reel with the construction, you have a reel-to-tape that goes to another reel of tape, and they're big. They're like seven inches or larger. And the tape heads and all of the mechanism is exposed, right? So the ability to kind of touch the tape and get at it is very easy. It's like, you know, like a film projector in that way. And, and also the machines are very expensive. And so there's probably an inhibition unless you were willing to make these investments to, to actually modify the machines, especially if maybe the machines belong to somebody right. else. But then these say machines, you're in a radio station or right. a library. Or but a something. lot of them also would have a lot more uh, controls that you could manipulate yeah, that the that the that the thirteen dollar Walkman recently produced right. in a factory in China. Like right. Yeah. So you would be able to, you know, one of the things that we could not do in the cassette hacking workshop was uh, reverse the tape. With this, you know, this particular motor is not going to go, and the mechanism of the of the Walkman that we were manipulating uh, was never going to go backwards. That's too bad. Yeah. But all of us, all of us who learned how to edit on reel to reel, learned how to edit to make something go backwards, which. I remember doing that project and it was super there, cool. There is still a way, right? There is still Well, I mean, a you way. could take apart the tape, yeah. the cassette right. tape, and just reverse the tape, which is effectively what you did on a reel-to-reel, except it was just as simple as swapping the reels. Yeah. And then many tape machines also had the ability to go backwards. But I think, you know, that's why we're arriving at it here, you know, in 2021, because uh, reel-to-reel decks are haven't been made for even longer. So, you know, there hasn't been a new one manufactured, and, and I don't think... I'm not sure how many were even manufactured in this century. And so they're even rarer. They were rare to begin with. Yeah. Right. And as, and as more people sort of decide they might want to try using one for art or in various purposes, then because of know, one popular YouTube channel that because won't the market go, goes that won't up be and mentioned become harder right to get. Yeah. And that's why, you know, but the cassette players, because as long as you're willing to work with uh, one that isn't uh, particularly high fidelity, isn't great necessarily for pleasurable listening, but record sound and plays it back. As long as you're willing to, to, to deal with that constraint, and in many cases the constraint I, I, I'm, I'm understanding is part of the allure, um, you know, you don't have a lot to lose in disassembling and possibly breaking a $13 cassette player right. versus, you know, disassembling even, you know, the, the, the $150 new in-box Walkman that you found on on eBay or somewhere else, right? You know, yeah. Um, you know, and that's. I think it. You know, it really does. I think this really does relate to radio, not just because of the history, but because, in fact, I mean, 
although a lot of people don't realize, I mean, tapes have been critical to radio broadcasting until the digital era really took over, whether it was for recording field audio, uh, you know, on cassettes, because that was the easiest way to go. Recording programs off satellite. Or yeah, just up, simply until, recording them up until the year, playback. up until the late 90s, that would have been, and during the early 2000s, you'd still have, uh, that would be a transitional moment for radio that, you know, that the, the reporters would be out in the field with the cassette recorder. Um, you know, uh, the, the alternative was a mini disc player. And so there'd be a, yeah, there'd be a and, overlap in, in adoption of new technology at that point. And, and, and also cert- ar- yeah. and archiving, you know, the way that we archived our radio shows was on cassette. Right. And, and I remember having a dedicated air check cassette deck. There was even one that just recorded our voices, mm-hmm. our mic break. And so you could have program directors listen to what they call a scope check. And it was on cassette, and it was all of just your, the voice parts of your show, so they could critique you. Well, and one of the well, because it would only turn on when the mic went on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It would only turn on when the mic went on. One of the yeah. one of the stories that I shared with the people in my workshop by way of introduction was that when I was working at KPFA in the early two thousands, uh, one of those shows that had the most um, uh, the the largest workload, the morning show, would interview people. Uh, Four, sometimes four four people a day, and sometimes they were interviewing uh, world renowned intellectuals and artists. I think the story in particular that I was uh, that I was told was might have been about Maya Angelou and uh, computers, which are amazing and have uh, crystal clear digital fidelity. Uh, if the power goes out or if there's some kind of software or hardware issue, you, your interview is uh, it has just disappeared. It never existed. And they always – the morning show had a cassette tape that they would always run in the background of every interview, always record a backup recording because in the event of a power outage or catastrophic software or hardware computer failure, the cassette tape's backup recording wasn't going anywhere. Even if the power went out while it was recording, the, the – the, the, It would the, just stop. Yeah, it but would just stop. There was, was no, there was no yeah. digital file corruption possibility that would that could always um you know mini discs were notorious i would lose such amazing uh things i had just recorded just because you didn't press stop before your battery died you know the audio is gone yeah in the midst of, uh, of your tragic. process but with a cassette tape the you know the information that's stored there um it, it might be analog but it's still weirdly more stable because it's analog well, you are listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. You just heard from Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits. I'm Paul Reesmandel. And, and we're talking about cassettes and analog media, the relationship to art and radio. Um, and, and sort of, I, I think it's always marveling at, at the durability of this format that, you know, sort of like radio, commentators have wanted to declare dead and buried or at least tremendously passe time and time again over the last 25 years and yet uh really refuses to die not just in terms of simply being available but in terms of people's desire to to use it one of the things that you've just reminded me of as we're ending this conversation and transition to the next one is that i think another thing that dogmatic was uh, uh was proselytizing in favor of uh, during this cassette hacking workshop, which I think is very much a part of community radio culture as well, is this idea of um, being able to repair your equipment mm-hmm. or 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 um, 
uh, understand the technology that you're that you're making use of and have more agency as a as as a mem- as as a creator over over the work and um you know allowing allowing technology to get the better of us is sort of like the default that many companies sort of have built into their to their devices to their software to the products that we depend upon to be artists and creators and community members but um when you get when you know how to when you know how to solder it sort of gives you a whole new um and and the device is simple enough that it yeah. can be soldered and you can in a belt can yeah. be changed but in a and the parts can be exchanged. I mean, I'm just thinking about all the times we've talked to people who've who've built community radio stations, especially uh stories about community radio stations in other countries that are that are that are that are thrown up and put on the air uh, you know, in jungles and and in and like that that spirit of being able to get your hands on the technology and and know how it works. I think, you know, you can't build a community radio station uh without people that that know how to hack. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, a, I think that's a great point, you know, and Jennifer, you noted how, you know, air checks, people's, you know, archiving their own radio shows on cassette. And I think, I think it's arguable that, you know, that if one is trying to find radio archives from the last 50 years, at the very least, there's a, there's more of them are probably on cassette because they were recorded either by listeners, <laughs> amateurs in that way. I know that say negative land and trying to reconstruct archives of, of over the edge has relied on some very uh, resolute listeners who have pretty extensive at home recorded archives uh, or, you know, in the case of, of DJs and hosts themselves who recorded right. for their own posterity or review um, because perhaps the station's archives would get recycled because the tape was too expensive. Right. The, the, hip, like oh, the hip hop radio archive uh, that we did yeah. an interview on many, many moons ago, as well as the documentary about um, Slim and Bobito in New York City and their hip hop radio show, like the cassette archives uh, were everything. Well, and often it was really left to the DJ to archive their own show. I think, you know, that that was fairly common. And probably still is in, in many cases, um, you know, but Jennifer, you know, that, that sort of made me think about, you know, the, the value of, of especially though uh, listeners and audiences, you know, and what the, this role they play in, 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 in become becoming archivists, whether they know it or not, or at least the input to archives. Cause I know that, uh, that you, you recently attended, um, I think it's a society for cinema and media studies, uh, conference right with and had many papers and presentations and research about sound and radio and podcasting but but uh, cassettes came up too they did yeah i mean every form of media came up and 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 it's interesting there were so many papers and it was all so fascinating to me as a popular culture fanatic um but i went to a, a panel or i went to see a presentation at the title of the paper was Live Long and Prosper, Bootlegging Television in the 1970s and 1980s, and the Social Life of Broadcast Recordings. And it was Nora Peterson. She was the scholar behind it. And so she mentioned something that I never heard before, that television fans shared cassette recordings of television shows. And and there was this whole cottage industry. And you're talking about audio cassette, not video cassette. And audio cassette. Yes. And so you think... Oh, well, fans, like maybe before you had a VCR where you could record a show, 
um, it never occurred to me that the way that you might preserve that show for your memory or as a fan to share with other people was by just recording the audio, because that was the tool that you had was, okay, I have a tape recorder, so I'll just record the show. And, and people would end up swapping these cassette tapes at fan conventions and through zines. And so by mail, essentially, there'd be like a directory and they'd find each other and, and, and so when I'd mail you this cassette and you'd mail me that cassette. Exactly. So for things like Star Trek and Starsky and Hutch. Oh, yeah. Um, and and she, she talked about this, and, and this later includes um, video recordings as well. But so these audio cassettes people would record or video cassettes later, um, she referred to that as an informal broadcast distribution. So there are, in addition to the official ways you might consume a television show like over the airwaves or or perhaps the show is in reruns so you get to watch it again there are also these informal ways that that just regular consumers might might share the broadcast with other people through their home taping um and did, did she say how she f- how she was able to to dig in did she get into her method at all and how she was able to explore that landscape and learn about both, I guess, their existence and 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 maybe more concrete things like the you know about it. Was she working through? Was she working through things like looking at zines or other other sorts of artifacts? Yeah, absolutely. Looking at zines, talking to to people who were fans. I think she's also immersed in the fan community, um, and she also historicized a little bit of this um, by mentioning. I wasn't aware of this, but she said that back in 1930. Victor actually marketed a home recording system to record off the radio onto transcription discs. And on the show, we've talked about transcription discs, you know, which are records, essentially. Uh, we've talked about that those being used in a radio station setting, where you might be able to record a radio show onto vinyl that way. But I had never heard about something being marketed to everyday folks so that you could record onto a record in your own home off the I'm radio. Sh- I'm sure it was prohibitively expensive. <laughs> I'm sure it was definitely something only only the most dedicated of 1930s audio or radio file could afford. Um, you know, but what's I mean, I sort of knew about this. So this is this is a deep deep seated memory, but specifically around Star Trek fans uh, because they're so dedicated and of course, you know, now Star Trek is part of our popular culture but was sort of went underground after it was canceled as a series, uh, you know, and, and it was a small and growing, but fervent fan base that kind of kept the, the show alive in a lot of ways. And ultimately, uh, you know, convinced Hollywood, it was worth reviving his movies and and new series. Um, but you know, during the eighties, certainly, uh, you could buy radios that had a TV band on them that allowed you to listen to the audio just uh usually of just channels uh three uh through uh 13 right basically the the vhf bands is known in part because those frequencies are close to the fm band so it's doesn't require designing a significantly different sort of radio when i was a child in the time before i could have had my own television in the 80s and certainly before we had a vcr I wanted, I desired a TV radio, a radio that has TV frequencies. And, and you know, such a thing was significantly less expensive than buying, say, like, a, a would have been maybe eight or ten years old, uh, a child my age, uh, 
a television, and so eventually I did get one. And I and I know I'm certain I recorded thing. I don't have any of these tapes any longer. I'm sorry. So you listen to TV on your radio? Yes. I love that. And, and made and, tapes. And these were these were common. I mean, you know, I mean, you could have walked into probably any uh, Kmart, any Radio Shack, you know, any any store that sold radios probably sold them. I I, I know currently I have a Sony radio in my house that is um, its vintage is from the early two thousands. So it's pre-digital transition. It has AM, FM, and television. Yeah, we My had... prize... Right. So, sorry, I'll, 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 was yeah. when I got a, a radio, and these were rare, um, a little later, probably as a tween, a radio that also picked up UHF television stations. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we we definitely had... I don't know if it picked up UHF, but we definitely had some radios in our house that picked up television, and 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 I think my dad would listen on the radio while watching the television because it might have facilitated hearing the show a little bit better. So they could also be used in that manner. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and certainly uh, there were boom boxes. Uh, so radios with built-in cassette recorders that had type TV band as well, not super common, but I know that they existed. So you had even, you know, a facility, you didn't even have to, you know, hook things up with wires, right? You know, and, 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 or, or put a microphone in front of the, right. the radio, which is probably what I did when I was like eight years old, um, in order to record this. So uh, this is fascinating, you know? And so uh, Jennifer, uh, well, oh, uh, before you, before you ask a question, I just yeah. want to point out one more thing that an interesting thing about these tapes is that people were also preserving a show, perhaps the way it was intended to be broadcast the first time around uh, because in this in this paper discussion, in in this presentation, there was also discussion about how when when shows were later rerun, sometimes things were cut out of them. So if you were a fan uh-huh. who recorded a show right. in the beginning, then you were preserving the show the way it originally aired, and and there might be scenes that people fondly remember that get cut out. And I hadn't really and they get cut out sometimes just for time. Yeah, exactly. Often shows in syndication or commercials on. But also sometimes they're cut out for content. Yeah. Right. Because something was controversial or someone objected to it or any number of other reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's fascinating. And, you know, I know, you know, we talk to a lot of scholars, uh, you know, some of whom are faculty, some people are, are independent researchers here about about their research into radio and sound um, on Radio Survivor. And... You know, it seems like at this conference you went to for the Society of Cinema Media Studies, um, there's quite a bit about radio, quite a bit about podcasting. And as we we talked with Michelle Hilms a few weeks ago, uh, a professor uh, who is one of the leading scholars really in radio studies, um, you know, it seemed as though these subjects fell out of favor for quite some time in the academy. And they, they they're there's rejuvenated uh, interest in it. But I'm I'm kind of curious why you think this that's important. Like why why should you know somebody who is you know deeply interested in sound in radio you know maybe as a listener or who loves community radio loves as as a college radio station that's dear to them why should they they feel like it's a good thing to be buoyed by the fact that um, scholars are are paying attention or and it seems like increasingly paying attention. Oh, I mean, well, it's a validation of, of audio and sound in the first place. And I mean, for me as a fan of radio and audio, 
it enhances my enjoyment of radio and audio when I learn more of the context and more of the history and and the ways that the history of radio parallels things that we see going on with podcasting today. So it kind of, you know, ends up helping to weave um weave together all these threads to create a broader story. And and in some cases there might be papers about radio in different cultures. So I can then see connections between radio in the United States and radio in South Korea, for example. Michelle Helms, when she was on the show, talked about drawing these connections because she was studying television and and realized she really needed to go back to radio because that is where the foundations of some of these television genres came from was radio. So um and I and I think with with young people starting to become more interested in podcasting, it, it it's probably interesting to learn, oh, wow, a lot of what I'm hearing in podcasts was um, something that comes from the early days of radio and things like radio drama. So uh, that's, for me, I'm always learning whenever I go to an academic conference, and it helps me to see things about radio in a new way. You know, like I mentioned about recording TV off the radio, which I hadn't really thought about before, even though there might have been examples of it throughout throughout my life, even in my own history, I hadn't really put put it all together until I saw that paper. So that's what I really appreciate appreciate about scholars is that sometimes they're just putting a whole new light on things that really opens up um, your ways of understanding ways of understanding something. Certainly. And there, there's an old cliche that, you know, history repeats itself. And it's it's a bit too simplistic, I think, for us to, to rely on as some kind of principle. However, in many ways, threads and dynamics do have a do tend to repeat often because often circumstances are not as dissimilar as you think they are yeah you like know? if you, if like, you wanted to form a really uh educated and uh, strongly factually based opinion about the podcasting work of Joe Rogan you could do a lot worse than understanding um you know, voices that were on the radio in the 1930s or 40s, and and or and, or 70s for yeah, that matter. Yeah, and seeing yeah. And seeing the parallels, and and you know, and being able to to sort of you know game out where this story is heading based on based on radio history. And, and economically speaking, you know, I mean, podcasting is going through a, a period of consolidation right now. Yeah. Right. Uh, beginning, you know, only about two years ago, right with with Spotify buying up networks uh, and having gotten becoming the exclusive distributor of Joe Rogan's program. And now iHeart has bought up podcast networks and technology, right? Um, this isn't in one way so different perhaps than what happened in the 1990s in radio in, in consolidation or consolidation of even, even other media industries, including film. Um, and there, there may be lessons in, in that also uh, for folks who, uh, maybe concerned and not want uh, a new medium like podcasting to look like radio did in 2010. Um, maybe there's also lessons to learn on 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 where are what are our places to intervene, what can be done differently, what are the critical differences between podcasting and radio broadcasting, and how maybe amplifying what is different 
and right. relying on what is different and strengthening that difference as, as well might, as might result in different outcomes. You know, the history of, of government intervention and regulation, you know, both as regards to uh, regulating speech uh, on on as well as the, you know, who can own what in the industry. It's all right. It's you know, it all happened 100 years ago. Give or take, give or take a few decades. So Jennifer, I mean, so attending this this conference, uh, which you know, which was virtual this year, as as most conferences have been for the uh, Society for Cinema and Media Studies, um, you know, all this energy around sound and radio and podcasting, um, I mean, does this give you the sense that, um, like? There's more to come. Does you get the sense that a lot of these that there's new scholars that these are you know in in the same way that we have uh, Zoomers interested in hacking cassettes and making music, are we seeing folks that are that are just starting their academic careers now? So folks you know essentially in their early to mid twenties, um, interested now in 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 further delving into to sound radio and, and podcasting. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know. A lot of the scholars were young scholars uh, who were represented at the conference, and there seems to be great interest in in studying sound in a contemporary context, but also looking back at at sound historically. So that is very exciting, very good news for sound studies and radio studies and podcast studies, and and hopefully we'll have some of these folks on the show in the future. I, I was definitely taking notes furiously and and there are things we didn't get to talk about today that I'm excited to talk about further with with some of the scholars who are doing this amazing work. Yeah, it's been great and what I've I mean what I've certainly noticed about the folks we've had on the show so far, many many folks is, you know, you know, I think it 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 certainly they're they're able to talk both as fans you know, and, and folks who are into sound and radio as well as scholars, right? And that seems to be a true thread that there's intrinsic interest in love underneath all of this, in addition, which drives in many cases uh, their desire to learn more. And sometimes it's accidental that they stumble into it, you know, and then, and then want to learn more. And in some cases, they're fulfilling something which maybe has been with them for a very long time. But uh, well, that's yeah, always the fun part. Exactly. And, you know, among my radio scholar nerd friends, a lot of us did college radio. So there's definitely, you know, some of these folks are are used to communicating in that way too, and 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 so they have that love for for doing radio in addition to studying radio, which to me is a killer combination. So I've got a couple of things, but um, so I'm remembering recording. Saturday morning cartoons off the television with my cassette recorder. Uh, I, I the memory of why I remember this one of all things was this with the TV was, recorder. This this was likely with the microphone hung in front of the speaker okay, on the TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. uh, it probably was a, uh, a maybe a little ahead, a little before I had more advanced uh, wiring skills. But I remember sort of recording the Chipmunks. There was a Chipmunks like Saturday morning show, so like an '80s revival, rather than like the classic '60s. And then playing it over my AM radio transmitter. <laughs> what? How old were you? Ten ish. Yeah. So you had an AM radio transmitter yes, when you so, were ten. So there, there oh were God. these. 
you could buy at Radio Shack. It was called like a 101 electronics kit. So it's this big kind of Lucite breadboard that had electronic components and each one had like two springs. And, and then you got a big book of projects that you could build. So you could build like an alkalinity tester. You could build a, and it had like a little piezo speaker. It came with a microphone. So you could build a radio, like something that's more like a crystal radio, but not quite. And one of the projects was to build an AM transmitter. And of course that was the first thing I built, right? And, uh, you know, and they give you, and you have all these wires and, and they're all tinned and you could just kind of connect up the parts according to the diagram. And then it had a little crystal microphone. And, and it may be actually that the microphone was the earphone, like, you, cause you can do that. Um, so it may be, that was it. And which is something so then, they, they taught us in the dogmatic cassette hacking workshop. We actually, okay. We yes. Actually, yes. Uh, we took apart, a, we took apart the, we took apart the speaker on one of the Walkmans and turned it into a microphone. Paul. Okay. Paul, what was the name of this kit again? It was like a, it was called like a Radio Shack, like a hundred electronics projects in one. And they were, I mean, they were sold throughout the sixties into the, well into the nineties. Yeah. Um, and I, mine came from, I'm certain came from a garage sale. Hmm. And as I recall, probably unused, probably some kid who's like, I don't want this garbage. And I'm the kid who's like, yeah, yeah, forget the forget forget the baseball mid. Give me the hundred and one electronics kit. Um, yeah, they were very common, and and one of the projects was building an AM transmitter. So which I did, in which you know then there was like the longest piece of wire might have been you know two feet long, and then there's a stern warning not to put a longer wire. Nah. So of course, what is the first thing I do? <laughs> <laughs> because then you because then you're transmitting beyond the legal limit. Is that why? I mean, potentially, I doubt the power output was significant enough, but yes, that would have been probably that's great the concern <gasps> that so they you... only that it would only be guaranteed to be compliant with part fifteen so you're... with with a certain well and, and there is an actual antenna size limit in in the rules so, so you've got it's longer than that. you've got your cassette deck with a recording of a Saturday morning cartoon eighties t v yes. show running chipmunks running through your am transmitter and so yes. are you leaving it in the room and going down into the yes of course uh, yeah exactly yeah. i uh, well the next thing is you walk out the door with 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 the radio to see uh how how, how many far. blocks away uh you could hear your chipmunks broadcast absolutely yes and did you make did you make people listen to it did you tell your parents like turn on your radio <laughs> i might have i probably was probably mostly i harangued my little brother who was really too young to appreciate it at the time but uh you know he may he may have memories of this um so yeah so that is sort of <laughs> i never wow. thought about all those things coming together and 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 i've always sort of taken for granted that people or at least i recorded things off the television on the cassette but but i mean i i don't know that i I don't know that I have any. I don't think I do. I, I, I you know, maybe there's some unmarked box in my parents, you know, uh, attic uh, of my things that maybe might have a cassette like that. Um, that makes you think, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, you know, I was a huge television. I still am. I love television. Um, and I got a tape recorder when I was in kindergarten and I definitely remember taping things off the radio right. and interviewing family members, but I don't know if I taped television that's very intriguing to me. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't think I ever did either. Same. Same deal. Although I was a. Uh, it wasn't very long before I would have had a VCR. 
uh, hmm. to record TV. So I, I would have only had a weird uh, early chunk of my childhood with a tape recorder and not a VCR. But I, I heard a, uh, um, uh, I heard this, the first time I heard about taping, using an audio tape to record the television was on a really wonderful um, Spotify-owned uh, podcast from Gimlet Media. Um, this was prior to Spotify owning uh, my 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 appreciation of the uh, podcast uh, heavyweight. No, no, no. It was Mystery Show. Mystery Show that I've never stopped talking about. And the last episode of Mystery Show um, uh, was an the 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 story was was about the host of the podcast heavyweight, who's also a uh, famous radio producer from the This American Life days of the early two thousands. Jonathan Goldstein, I believe. And yes. Jonathan Goldstein um, presents a mystery for mystery show based on a welcome back Cotter. It's a welcome back Cotter based mystery. But we learn that Jonathan Goldstein recorded uh, a large amount of welcome back Cotter episodes onto audio cassette to re-listen to them. And in fact, it, this, there's a kind of a suggestion in my mind as a listener that this was sort of his journey as a writer was you know analyzing the the scripts and storytelling as well as the 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 vocal delivery of the of the written lines on this uh you know on this extremely uh new york voiced youth youth culture uh television program like like having that audio tape to replay and to you know to take notes from seemed like an like an like a important part of his uh, development as an artist well, it's amazing because you don't I think it's hard for well, I mean, there still are a lot of things we don't have access to as far as television archives. Um, but I think a lot of young people, a lot of people, I'll say, assume that we can find everything online. We can find right. things on YouTube. Depends but on there are a lot want. of things you still can't find. And so that makes sense to if you're recording your show on your audio cassette, then you can reference it again. Um you know, this is before the days of of streaming and being able to rent things. But there's some things that you still can't access right. well, the, at all. The fi- the five year old example from Radio Survivor that we we've talked about before is when music licensing has uh, you know de- de- like developed a, a cost prohibitive uh, the 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 archive of the television program can no longer contain the original licensed music because of how much it would cost. So WKRP in Cincinnati was one example uh, from the, the 80s television program about a radio station in which the the songs being played in the scene are, you know, were hit oh, songs yeah. of the day and integral to the storylines. And then when when they when they released it on DVD, you can't have those songs anymore because those become it, the most expensive things. It drives the, me crazy. In I the, have um, in the uh, catalog. We we talked about that on an episode, and I might have referenced that the real world, you know, there are right. scenes on the real world where I remember the music being integral to the scene, yeah. and um, and there was just a real world reunion reboot show that was incredible. Um, it was really well done where they brought back cast members from the original fifty year season. old cast members, yeah, yeah, the original season in New York, and and there was a scene that I appreciated so much because they. They replayed a scene from the original series for the cast members on the TV or the video display in their loft. And it was a scene that, I don't know, that perhaps we had seen. I had just rewatched the yeah. first season, too. And 
the scene that they played, they played it with the original music. And I was like, aha, I was right. I know I was right. Because embedded within the episode, they actually played it with, played it with the correct music, right. because, even though because the in, episode that they show, you know, as the rerun of the yeah. rerun still has like um, this sort of generic music that they inserted right. in its place because in the 90s you know anything that aired on mtv they already had a built-in license for any any hit song that they could edit it into their show without having but to not pay, in perpetuity with, without having to pay extra like, so this, like beavis and butthead because right. half the show was right. beavis and butthead, beavis and butthead watching music videos and making fun of them right great, and, and right as well as you lose you that know, my that's half the show the biggest example in my life as a fan is um the the uh sketch comedy program the state with um they the this this 90s television program was there was every sketch well not every sketch because i actually found a vhs tape and went through my vhs tape of an episode of the state but every every episode they would utilize the pop music of the time and it would become a meta commentary on the jokes that they were telling so you know a song like uh, two princes by um Spin Doctors. Spin Doctors. You know, when that song plays in a sketch, it has – it means something. It it's, yeah. it has a feeling that it's evoking of, um, you know, it's already its own joke. And so when you layer that on top of the other joke, um, that's that's part of what, w- what was going on in the 90s, you know, making fun of this Spin Doctors song in, in the context of this other joke that they're telling on the sketch comedy show. And then now um, it took – I know it took like seven, eight, ten years for the state to be released on DVD because they needed to mount the expensive uh, uh, production effort of replacing all the music. Every hit song had to be stripped away from the. They had to re-edit the entire series. They, you know, uh, it's kind of a remarkable like second. Because even then, at a time when home video exists, they hadn't really thought of right. Well, gee, maybe, maybe, maybe several years down the line, somebody would want to own this. Right, and they were they were in their early twenties <laughs> when they're making it, right? So these well, these and were... it wouldn't have been up to them anyway, probably, yeah. right? It probably but would have been up to to executives. I hope I hope nobody gets rid of their home taped. I mean, when I was I in grad, have, sorry, when I was in grad school studying television, I relied on friends who who shared things they had taped off the television for me, so that I could write papers about certain TV shows yeah. that I couldn't you know, find the videotapes for elsewhere. And I mean, it's, it's really heroic in a way, if you think about the folks who have saved these and, and what will become of these taped off the television yeah, my, archives. My I know the internet archive is, um, has accepted an influx of these amazing home recordings that right. this woman on in videotape. Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. But I'm, I'm curious now if they have any that are on audio tape. Oh, funny. Oh yeah. We'll have to, you know, I'll have to take a look. But, you know, thinking of the audio side, though, I mean, it makes you think of Don Joyce, right? The the the, the ostensible host of Over the Edge, because that was his method, right, of, of, of right. gaining so much of the audio uh, assets that he would use were taped onto cassettes. I mean, and when you think about it, it, it's efficient. And if all you want is the audio, why take the video, right? Because it's simply a bulkier cassette. It's less reliable. Um, harder to probably to manipulate and deal with, even in terms if you're digitizing it. And 
um, you know, probably it'll turn out uh, in in ten or fifteen years the audio because there will be audio cassettes that are still playable while videotapes are not because they're simply more complex uh, and uh, more more subject to failure compared to audio cassettes, which just are are just really simple in terms of their mechanical complexity. Um, but you know, and that was his source, right? And he would his method of rec- he would record cassettes for hours and hours. He sort of had re- them always recording, as you see in the documentary, uh, how radio isn't done, um, and then edit them. But really, essentially, just dub them from one cassette to another to get uh, the parts, and then using that often to feed into a ca- another tape recorder, a, a, a cart recorder, which so can, can play backwards. I've never Can't. wanted a cart machine so badly. Uh, not all of them do. Right, not but, all of but them Don do. Joyce would I, – I, you know, actually, now I'm not sure if I remember if Don Joyce would reverse his tapes. But he would certainly – had a um, – he could manipulate the speed of his cart machines yeah. live on the air in a way that made me uh, think and about sometimes that wasn't, the cassette hacking workshop. And sometimes that wasn't really a feature so much it was uh, a maintenance feature, meaning mm-hmm. it might be a dial on the back, which is just meant to tune it to make sure it's staying in pitch. But then, you know, yeah, but, but I, I, I definitely I remember if he could run it backwards. So no, I'm sorry, but you could probably take was the in tape out. Yeah, well, you could. Machine. Yeah, uh, they're a little they're a pain to work with compared to cassettes, um, but an intrepid person could do it. Um but certainly the cassette decks that we used in community radio and I remember in college radio all had a pitch function in I mean these were like the Tascam, right. you know, industrial rack mounted steel oh, yeah. cassette decks. And they all Yeah, had, we've got pitch um on all the C D players too. So there's yeah. some people that manipulate their pitch on every device yeah. at the station. The fun part about the cassette hacking workshop that I didn't really get into because it's really the best part was we learned about integrated chips, which are a whole new set of complexity and so we could we've we actually built um a few different machines and then had to take them apart and build new machines with the same parts um that you could manipulate the motor speed in uh uh, you we actually built a simple sequencer so that it would you could manipulate the speed um uh rhythmically in in the you know every every few seconds it would change to a different speed and then would change back in a rhythm that was predictable. And so there is, it's a very, um, mind blowing, uh, collision of analog and digital, uh, potential for sound creation. Again, yes, you could go into your mouse with your DAW and, decide I'm going to take this one second clip and make it this speed and this one second clip and make it this speed. And then I'm going to have that change over time. But to have all of that available to you um, with the spinning of a tiny potentiometer or, or two potentiometers at once um, changing over time, it's just a, there's, there's, there's a hands-on uh, uh, analog, dirty punk rock, you know, it's, it's like, it's like making your zine on your computer or making your zine by xeroxing. Yeah. By xeroxing with a with or collage with you know, with scissors with cutting and up magazines yeah, with scissors and glue sticks. Like, yes. I love it. Yeah. Are they are they doing more of these workshops because now I want to take it. Oh, they are and um I highly recommend it. Uh, I had a wonderful time. I have one more thing cuz we're talking around the obsolescence here, right? And how 
as you mentioned earlier, Eric, you know, the, the iPad or the computer can be great for doing all your sound manipulations until, you, you know, it will no longer run the OS you need to run that software or it doesn't update you didn't expect it to and now nothing works. One of my favorite hardware. new YouTube uh, musician, you know, gearhead YouTube review channels calls it Apple's uh, bull, bullpucky, but not bullpucky. He uses, yeah. uh, and it's just that like, you know, he he, dem- he talked about how Apple technology tends to be planned obsolescence on a on a speed on a time frame that is that is impossible to keep up with as a professional uh, unless you spend top dollar in a way yeah. that's not necessary. Like the right. the thing that he plugs into his iPod from two years ago doesn't work anymore, but it could. Right. They broke it, could. it. Yeah, yeah. Well. Uh, you know, uh, on April 30, thousands of internet radios broke. Oh, that's right. Um, because they they were all using a directory service called Receiva, which ultimately got bought by Qualcomm, which formerly made cell phones and made lots of other things or a chip maker. And, so these radios, like a Grace Digital Radio or a C Crane uh, Internet Radio, lost the ability to search and find radio stations. These were fun. Because- these were fun devices that were like a bridge between having a radio in your home, you know, and 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 having a laptop that you would turn on, plug into the speakers, and tune in to right. all of the web radio stations. You could have this box that would find web radio stations right you all still the can world. they still exist yeah and it's um, i mean that's been my essentially my clock radio has been an internet radio yeah and and we've had trouble connecting to wi-fi so mine has not really been working for a while so i'm not exactly sure i'll have to plug it in and attempt it again break it. um but but yeah it feels like something that has increasingly shame. not been working, even though it was sort of a dream for me to be able to tune into radio stations that I can't actually get normally over the airwaves in my house, and I could just turn the dial like I would on a radio from my childhood. I love it. I know, and and, and it's it may be because a lot of the stations weren't getting updated because the, here's the thing Broken is like the thing about radio broadcast terrestrial radio is that I mean it's. They're all in a known place, <laughs> and and even with, with shortwave it can technology get complex, that doesn't change. To go on. The technology to tune in the radio station in the thirties, you can yeah. It, they didn't. There's not going to be a broken link. Yeah, to there's a radio only station. so many. There's only so many spots in the dial. So even if a station oh. changes its position on the dial, if you scan around, you can find it. So ostensibly. wait, who do we who do we blame about these broken internet radios? Qualcomm. Qualcomm. Um, and but b- because internet radio stations, it's not like you could. There's some master. I mean, there is no master directory. Ostensibly, right. this was it. But any given college, community, public, commercial radio station could say tomorrow, "Oh, geez, you know, we, uh, <laughs> you know, the service we were using quit functioning, and we're going to a new service for our internet stream." And on their website, they update it. It's got a new address, got a new URL. Yeah. Maybe they're able to get it into a change in a directory. I mean, podcasting suffers from the same problem of, of right. Apple right now, apparently, is not been updating its podcast directory as well. And lots of podcasts have gone missing and they've been ha- as they've updated it. 
and it's often functioned as a de facto master directory of podcasts, but isn't. Um, you know, there you don't have to list a podcast in Apple, and Apple rejects some podcasts from their directory for right. a number of reasons. You can have an RSS feed that functions perfectly well that Apple doesn't will know not, about. Yeah, will yeah. not include. But of course, it means a lot of people won't easily find your uh, find your station. And there is actually a um, open source podcast directory project happening now, um, which, which I think is a very good thing. Um, and I there are open source radio directories, but in many Jeez. cases. Um, Two of the largest companies, uh, iHeart and uh, Intercom, now known as Odyssey, um, don't want their stations listed. They only want them listed either in their in their proprietary apps. Um, sure. And so sometimes the listings in something like the is much more uh, kind of opt in. And maybe the one most people are familiar with as a brand name is TuneIn. Yeah, TuneIn Radio, and often TuneIn is available as like an app on. You know, not just uh, smartphones, but also on things like Roku's connected televisions. Um, say, so if you have a Sonos, I don't uh, even that know one way that you would listen to, to radio than, is is via the TuneIn app. Other than TuneIn, I don't know of any other way to do it on my my Apple smartphone. Oh no, there's lots of third party apps that use different directories. I should, just just search I should, around. I should I can't, download a new one. I can't refer it to you because uh, I, I don't remember off the top of my yeah. head, but they exist, and I've I've written about it. So you can go to radiosurvivor.com because uh, especially with, with Apple, um, Apple dropped internet radio for a while in its update of its music apps. Funny. So it only had like a smattering of stations, whereas Apple for a very long time, iTunes had a very large, extensive right, right, right. and yeah. interesting directory of internet radio stations you could explore. Um, another one you can look at is VLC. So uh, Video LAN, I forget what, what C stands for, but VLC is a very long-standing open source audio and video player project. I'm pretty sure there are apps for both Android and iPhone. There's certainly apps yeah, for as well as Macs, the, Windows, yeah, and Linux. Exactly. And they also there's also a, a, an internet radio directory there that you can kind of uh, fool around with. But again, you you know, it's not embedded in your grace digital internet radio and why did they do you know why they remove this directory why did they why qualcomm they just didn't want to fund it anymore i mean (laughs) i think it i think it was probably uh you know as far as i understand it was really just sort of you know oh not and that's like not very useful there's probably a very good internet history podcast in the making about why they were the default yeah uh, catalog of, of internet radio stations in the well, first Well, it place. was once an independent company yeah. that then was acquired, right? Um, and I understand that uh, both Grace Digital and C-Crane in particular as being two of, the, two of the bigger manufacturers like offering discounts on new radios that are more future-proofed. Um, I think a lot of them, you know, I, I know a little less than if I haven't owned one, um, they say often if you have presets, those will still work as long as the station is still at the old address because it sort of stores that, that address in its memory and that many of them, you can go in and like manually enter information for a station, but that's sort of a clunky process, especially when you don't have a keyboard uh, and you're using whatever dials and stuff you have to in- input it. And, and it, it certainly doesn't make it the kind of scanning discovery uh, experience that you would have otherwise. It's very different than surfing the internet to 
move the little dial through every letter of the alphabet to try to find things. (laughs) Yeah, I had a AV receiver, a Yamaha that, um, and this is often there's just a lot of AV receivers. There's, There's all these. There's a lot of hidden features that people don't always realize that they have, like a you know, like a, a home theater receiver. Most of them do HD radio, for instance. Uh, it's one of the few play ways that's easy to get HD radio in your house. Um, but my house also had an internet radio service. I don't have it any longer, and I don't know whether it was receiver or who it was. And it wasn't quite a scanning kind of experience. I don't know what the interface was like on your Grace Digital, but it definitely, you it would usually either you had like a genre list or, you know, a format list or a country list. You know, and depending on the country, sometimes, you know, like in the United States, it got fairly fine grained to state and sometimes city. Whereas sometimes it was just like New Zealand or just like, ah, it's just, it's a tiny country. It's all New Zealand. And I would have fun going through there and you kind of, uh, you, you'd see the interface on your television. So you sort of had a way to go through it. You, you could kind of see it on your, on the screen, on the receiver, but it was a little tough to read. Um, and I used to have fun with that a little bit, kind of scanning around and finding new stations um, I don't know what it's like, what it was like to experience on your, on your digital radio. There was, you know, it was funny cause it's not the first time it came up into my feeds, but it was about, uh, three or four weeks ago, the, the global map of internet radio stations went, went mildly viral again. I had a, oh, had a, yeah. garden. I had a group, no, yes, yep. garden. I had yeah. a group of friends share it, uh, yeah. at Likewise. random <laughs> and it was, it was nice. And I wonder, I wonder how that map is doing radio garden. Yeah. Very cool, yeah. very cool way to surf the internet. It is, as yeah. The kids say, look around the globe and listen to radio stations. And I wrote about it on Radio Survivor back when it went around the first time. Yeah, that's <laughs> the fine. first time we spun the globe. Well, isn't it nice to know that uh, something like Radio Garden has more than one opportunity to go viral? We <laughs> often, I think, assume that that virality is is associated or intrinsic to sort to novelty. Or newness, but that something like Radio Garden might be novel to somebody who's never seen it before. And if they happen to be have the right social media network, can uh, you know sort of resurface it? It is. I know it is exciting. I feel like it's gone viral at least three or four times. Actually, um, you know, it might have been on Boing Boing at one point, and then that seems to make it viral among a certain subset of people. It's it, fascinating. It would not have broke because of these, um, this Qualcomm, would it? Would that be possible? Radio Garden? No, my know. my understanding is Radio Garden is, has its own database. Yeah, it's that, hand it's hand curated. So yeah, I think it you still can, works. And you can submit. Yeah, and 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 have a station on there. Okay. Right, and then they, you know, it began with stations that they hand selected. I know this because KFJC was on there and I was excited about it. And then they were excited that somebody from KFJC was talking to them, which made me excited. <laughs> I'm going to listen to Radio Garden as soon as we go. I know. Right. The air. Oh, yeah. I spent like a whole Saturday back when it, when it had the second. Oh, no. I spent a whole Saturday on World Radio Day. That's what I was doing. Right. But just um, going up and down the coast of Africa. Like what, what, yeah. what could be better? And yeah. And um, well, it's and great I to have that. That visual mapping, and yeah. and we actually talked about this at a recent radio preservation task force meeting. People were interested in mapping, and right. and I also mentioned the pirate, the Brooklyn Pirate Radio map. Like, there's something about listening to radio from a map, which is kind of cool and makes it 
and maybe it maybe it brings people into radio in a different way when when it's on this coolly designed visual map. Well, it reminds us that it is truly geographic. Like radio exists in geographic space. Um and so while internet radio is sort of removed from that, a large percentage of these stations represented in Radio Garden are terrestrial stations. And so really do have a terrestrial footprint. And then even if we take apart the literal terrestrial footprint of the radio waves and how far they can go, there's also, you know, the community that likely fuels and supports that station, even if it's entirely online, right? The the local internet community radio stations or college internet stations, et cetera. Um, are likely still fueled by in many ways and and mostly listened to by people who are in a particular locality. And you might not otherwise really have heard of them unless you were in that locality. So it gives you that kind of uh, of way in. But I, I'm reminded of, of Radio Free America, unfortunately, which has gone away, which was a community and college radio directory online. Um, again, itself completely you know separate from any of these uh so not tied to any other service um and and perform two functions one of course being a directory so you could listen in to college and community stations around the country but then they also provided an archiving service which i think ultimately was what was not sustainable where uh you could listen you could listen to something like two weeks worth of an archive of pretty much any any of these stations and so you had the ability not just to uh not just to travel uh over geography, but to travel over time. Well, and and along those, a similar thing was the college radio map, which later became SoundTap, which I think still you can still access it, but it's a way of accessing college and community radio streams. And it was originally a map, like a map of the United States, where you could pick a point on the map to listen to a college radio station. So it was kind of like a place like TuneIn, you know, where it was just. Um, connecting to the existing stream of a radio station rather than being an archive like Radio Free America was. Right, right. And so possibly more sustainable. And at least the thing with like a web app is that ostensibly it goes obsolete much more slowly (laughs) than a computer app. Although eventually, you know, I mean, if you try to do, you know, look at Radio Garden with Windows 98, you're probably not going to, uh, you're probably going to have some problems. It's mm. probably not going to work so well. Uh, but, uh, you know, provided that the person who, of course, has put together the website is willing to continue to fund it and keep it online, which is uh, the critical part, um, then your machine's uh, capabilities are a little less critical, I suspect. I don't want to go on record and say this is a principle. But, you know, ultimately that's, you know, if, if they, if the folks who fund Radio Garden run out of funding or are no longer able to do it, right, that's right. poof. It's, uh, so uh, I know less start about making it. an archive wanna... of my Radio Garden streaming. I mean, that's why there's the Internet Archive. I mean, which, you know, something like an app is hard to archive, I suspect. Uh, right. Not but as if easy you, you as could, a website. You can, uh, you can make, you can make a tape of one day's worth of radio garden listening to go back. Oh, we to need that. our, um, Oh, <laughs> we need our computer. Wait, our, um, software defined radios. Now <laughs> we need that to be part of the whole conversation, have the software defined radios set up to 
record a day of Radio Garden. I don't think that works. <laughs> Somebody can build it. Unfortunately. Someone can hack it together somehow. I don't think that quite works. Someone can but I, it, someone yeah. could make someone could definitely write software that could do the equivalent. But it, it yeah, you just yeah, uh, I guess that's I, true. It's not buy a lot yeah. of hard drives. Radio Garden is not over shortwave or is, over yeah. FM. Yeah, just buy a lot of hard drives. I think is what we're talking about. That's our. That's what we leave you with, friends. Buy a lot of hard drives. You have to run. Thank you for listening to Radio Survivor. On behalf of Jennifer Waits and Paul Reese Mendel, my name is Eric Klein. If you'd like to email us here at Radio Survivor, the email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We would love to hear from you, your questions, your comments, your reactions, your stories, your show ideas. Show notes as well as audio archives are online at radiosurvivor.com. Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more, you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.